0: Hello and welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason, where every week, at least once, we discuss the issues that affect our favorite industry. The industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. That is the business of agriculture, which is why I titled this podcast that. Okay, here's the deal. I hope that you keep up with me on social media. If you do, you've probably already seen my commentary on this. If you do not, or you didn't have a chance to read it, that's why I'm giving it to you now as a podcast. I posted an article yesterday. Now, by the time you're hearing this, it might be a few days ago. So go and look for it, if you will, on all social formats. Facebook, my professional speaker, Damian Mason page. Damien, at Damien P. Mason is Twitter, at Damien P. Mason is Twitter, and Damien Mason on LinkedIn. I shared it around. It's a Wall Street Journal article that I think has got bigger, shall we say, foresight, bigger foreshadowing is the right word, of where agriculture is headed. Hear me out on this. The title of the article, the headline, is In the Battle for the American West, the Cowboys are Losing. Did you hear that? In the battle for the American West, the Cowboys are losing. And you're saying, I'm a soybean farmer in Illinois, Damien. I'm a cranberry farmer in Massachusetts. I sell machinery in Georgia. I'm out here working in ag finance in Idaho. Damien, why do I care about this? Why you care about this topic is because it's very much telling of where our country is headed and it's not good for the culture of agriculture. If you did not see the article, you can go on to the Wall Street Journal and then type in their search engine, in the battle for the American West, the Cowboys are losing. Either way, I'm going to paraphrase and I'm going to give you the whole lowdown right here because my job is to save you time. I am the book report on all that matters to you from my perspective. Here's the deal. A profile, a guy named Wayne Haig who is a rancher, a second or third generation rancher in Nevada. He's got 7,000 acres of his own private land and about 750,000 acres of leased BLM. If you don't know what that means, if you're like from where I'm from, Indiana, 3% 3% of Indiana is publicly held, and that's mostly at the state level because there's not really any federal lands in, in uh, Indiana, hardly to speak of. So 97% of Indiana, where I'm from, is privately owned. But in vast Western countries that are more deserty, very much of the land is owned by the federal government. And when I say owned by the federal government, we should point out the government really owns nothing. The people own the land because we are the taxpayers. So in Nevada, 80 percent of Nevada is owned by the federal government. In Arizona, where I'm coming to you right now, from vast amounts, I think over 33 percent of Arizona is BLM land. And We have Indian reservations, we have national forests, etc. So in the old days, the agenda was this. We're a government, we know we got a westward expansion going on. We're going to make a deal with the railroads, let the railroads go out there, we're going to give away some land. But then we had these huge, vast tracts that are that Bureau of Land Management lands. What can we do to get some production out of that? So they struck deals where they charged a pretty minuscule amount of rent to lessees, ranchers, if you will, to put animals out there. And they charged them by the animal unit month, okay? And I'm not gonna say that I completely understand it, but let's face it, it's just like, you know, hours or, or, or anything you're gonna charge for. Well, here's the idea. The environmental groups now are going after this hardcore because they decide that there's mud and silt in a stream is because of ranching. They decide that there's you know a species of animal that right now is suffering is because of ranching. And I think this is going to continue to get worse. So the gist I'm going to give you, and the point I'm going to make, is this only gets worse for all of agriculture. And you can say, why do I care about BLM leases? I'm out here growing cotton in Lubbock, Texas, Damien. You care because Where this goes is not good for agriculture because we lose in the court of public opinion. Let me give you some examples. First off, we're completely outnumbered. You already know that. You listen to my podcast. You know what I talk about. 1% of our country farms, 3.2 million out of our 320 million farm. 21.5 to 22 million are working peripherally in the business of food, fuel, fiber, farming. So about 7% of us peripherally involved. So at best, we lose the vote 93 to 7 or 99 to 1. Now, let's also realize that environmentalist groups that are all non-profit status organizations are extremely well-funded. These organizations have money that comes in on a daily, weekly, monthly basis with campaigns. All they have to do is take a... This began in the 70s. You know, we put a picture of a Native American on TV walking through a stream littered with uh, junk and said, you know, and he's crying and we said, we got to do better. And we did have to do better. And we have done better. The environment today in the United States is cleaner and better than it was 100 years ago. True story. You won't hear that in the media, but it's a true story. When I was a little kid, we had rivers in Cleveland catching on fire. We did have acid rain. That was the first big movement that I remember. It was in the late 70s, early 80s. The statues were being eroded away because of the acid in the rain. So we got rid of sulfuric acid, and we put in scrubbers on the smokestacks. And we also outlawed anything that might involve manufacturing. It moved to China, where they have acid rain now. That means a bunch of factory workers are out of work in upstate New York or Michigan or Indiana, where I'm from, but we don't have acid rain, although we might have not had that anyway. I do digress, but let's point out, environmentalism will win because we now live in an environment of environmentalism. And these groups know how to fight. They fight with emotion. You don't care about the water. You're out here polluting the streams. You care more about those cows that someone's just going to murder and eat than you care about our environment. And that messaging wins increasingly with an out-of-touch, increasingly out-of-touch, I should say, America when it comes to agriculture and food. Nobody goes without food in this country. I mean, we can say we've got some people that are a little bit hungry, but 48 million of them are on food stamps. And we've got a whole upper class that's eating very, very high on the hog, so to speak. So they can bite the hand that feeds them because it doesn't cost them anything. And let's put this BLM thing in perspective. In 1979, 40 years ago, 22,000 ranchers had leased permits for 12 million head of livestock, mostly cattle, on public land. Today, it's 18,000 ranchers with 7 million. Put that in perspective, there's 95 million animals in the U.S. beef herd, 95 million. So 7 million of them are out there on public land. So are we going to get by without them? That's about 8% of the herd. It's sizable. If you just whacked 8% of the herd and completely got rid of them, beef prices would go up considerably. But what will end up happening, because this will go slowly, is those animals will move on to private land Places like where I'm from, where there's someone that has 100 acres of rough ground that they haven't done anything with for 20 years, might finally see the economic potential for putting some uh, cow-calf operations in. But what I'm worried about, and you should worry about, dear listener to the Business of Agriculture podcast, is what this really means for us as an industry. It means that PR professionals for well-funded, quote, not-for-profits can put us out of business. And their argument's gonna be, well, you were getting a subsidized lease. They called them in this article, welfare ranchers. You'll like that, dear people of agriculture. Welfare ranchers, because they were only paying $3 for something that they have deemed is worth $20. Now, I don't know. You ever try and raise animals in a desert? <laughs> I'm not sure that it's really worth a lot anyway. But here's the issue. They're going to say that on environmental grounds and then recreation outdoors is more important. We want to ride our mountain bikes. We want to hike out there. We want to go out and see pronghorn antelope. We don't want to see your Angus cows out there in the middle of the desert. So I think that that's going to be our bigger concern. And then you've got the issue of once they pull the leases, does it start getting to where they do this on our private lands? Well, we're already seeing that. Factory farms get protested all the time. CAFOs, as they call them, confined animal feeding operations. And what's interesting to me, that while the American consumer will say in poll after poll, that they value the small farmer, that they value the independent rancher, they will, with their votes or their consumer sentiment, allow those same people to put out of business right here in the American West by yanking the leases from them. The gentleman profiled in this article in the Wall Street Journal, Again, titled, In the Battle for the American West, the Cowboys Are Losing. Mr. Haig is finally throwing in the towel. He says, I can't afford to fight the government anymore. So he's got 2,000 cows. He's a cow-calf operator. He moved them uh, away. And here he is. I, I mean, he I, killed my mom and dad. They're both dead, he says. You know, and they're, they're, there we are. So read the article if you get a chance. Or, again, I've just pretty much given you the recap on it. Where I see this going that has me more concerned is that we have a younger generation that has been somewhat indoctrinated to believe that the government has greater rights than the individual. You know, our forefathers didn't see it this way. Maybe your grandparents didn't see it this way. They pretty much thought that they were their own thing and the government ought to leave them alone. That's changed a lot. We've got 48 million people on food stamps. We've got the government involved in every nature of our business. So if the younger generation, the same people right now that are talking about the Second Amendment, the same people right now that are, you know, mobilizing on Twitter, Do those people, those 18 to 30-year-olds, do they have the same values that you have? And that's my point here. Where this ultimately goes that's not good for our culture goes there because we have a more activist government than we've ever had. Look at where the people from the EPA ended up as Trump's administration started cutting funding to the EPA. They went to work for environmentalist groups. So they went from a government sector being an activist to being a Nonprofit sector being an activist. We also have a government that is more responsive to those movements because they are funded and lobbied by those groups. You think the Ottoman Society, the Nature Conservancy, the Environmental Working Group don't have people on the street in Washington, D.C., on Capitol Hill funding those politicians? Of course they do. And then let's go with the other thing that's a big concern. In my In my view, and I think you're gonna agree with this, We've got a real concern with where this goes because cowboy culture is no longer cool in the United States. I'm sitting here in my cowboy shirts. I got my Tony Lama cowboy boots in the closet. I own cattle. I'm a farm guy. And there's people like us all around this great land. But that's not really cool anymore among the mainstream, is it? How many times have you watched a Western in the last five years? What about Gene Autry? Did you listen to Gene Autry growing up? Did you have Gene Autry Christmas albums? I bet you your kids don't. What about Roy Rogers? Is that pretty popular now? Tell me what Cowboy Bob is doing these days. The point is, cowboy culture is completely out of our culture. And agriculture, as a culture, is more maligned. What do we stand for? We stand for family values, traditional values, hard work, work ethic, rugged individualism. We carry firearms to shoot predators that are going to attack our livestock. We are things like man and wife and meat eaters. Do you think that right now in the United States of America, that sort of culture is being celebrated or attacked? I know we're sounding a little bit political here, but agriculture has always been politically influenced. We deal with the farm bill every four or five years. It's being debated right now. It's not really a farm bill. It's a food bill. You've heard that. 80% of the farm bill goes for a wick, free lunches, free breakfast, school lunch, food stamps, SNAP. The point is, we're always under the thumb of a political movement and probably getting worse so. That's my concern. As America becomes more, shall we say, Left leaning in terms of the government having a bigger role. You can argue with the politics. I'm not here to tell you how to vote or think. I'm telling you, we cannot deny that we've become more dependent on government and more of a big government society than we were 100 years ago. So, if that's the case, does agriculture lose because of our culture? I think we do. I'm Damian Mason. You're listening to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, where every week, at least once, we discuss issues impacting the business of agriculture. I think that we need to consider this a line in the sand. These lessees will probably be kicked off in the next 10 years. There will not be agriculture on public land in the next 10 or 20 years. Mark my words. Come and tell me if I'm wrong, but I won't be, and I'll tell you why. Environmental groups will move the agenda. They move the needle because they're better funded and they're smarter about how they fight and they have better PR. And all they have to do is go and tell consumer, consumer Joe and Jane that ag's not paying its fair share. Why would this land that we could go out there and ride our mountain bikes, why would it be open to ranching, and the consumer, of course, has very little at stake. They're not going to go without a cheeseburger. They're still going to have a cheeseburger, so why would the consumer not fall for that line of reasoning and support that which does not support agriculture? 7% of the U.S. herd on BLM land. Again, if that has to shift over the next 10 or 20 years, and it will, it's probably not going to be a big problem for us to produce. We can do that. We can produce the meat. We can still do that because that's what we do, we produce. But again, I'm more concerned about the foreshadowing of what this means. Our culture versus America's culture. And if we lose this one, does it mean that we're going to cede greater control over time? And I think that we will. Again, I'm Damian Mason. I do appreciate you joining me here for my podcast. If you agree, disagree, fine. Give me your comments. Share this around. I really appreciate you joining me. Till next time, thank you.